Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Taylor Mack, whose show Taylor Mack's Holiday Sauce is at the current through December 1st, 2018. Taylor Mack is the co-director and the performer of a 24-decade history of popular music, a uh, playwright, her, among the plays. So let me start. Before we get into Holiday Sauce, what was it like being on Colbert? Oh, it was so much fun. I met Stephen at a party at his house, actually, for the Montclair Film Festival. His wife runs the Montclair Film Festival. We performed at a benefit for them, and then we went to this party, and we just ended up talking for an hour and having a great time. He's so smart. There's very few people who have the opportunity to be in that position that he's in where he's interviewing people in such a high-profile way and managing all the comedy of that and the seriousness of it at the same time. So his exercising his brain in a different way than other people. So it's just thrilling to talk to him. It was total joy. The staff is incredible there, and we just had so much fun. It's very rare for a queer weirdo to be part of that machine that is late night. So it was rare, I think, for them as well as for us. And I I was like that. I like being the bridge between the normative and the insane. When you came out in full machine dazzle costume, had he seen you before? He came backstage. Well, he saw my show. We did a full show, two-hour show in Montclair that he came and saw, which is why he asked us to be on the show. So he'd seen me dressed up and stuff. Uh, MacArthur Genius Grant, so I guess I'm talking to a genius now. You also were a finalist for the Pulitzer. Yeah, you're a fancy schmarty. <laughs> how, how does that success feel to you at this point? My drag mother, Mother Flawless Sabrina, whenever she met somebody, she didn't know their name. But she knew them, but she couldn't remember their name. And she would always introduce people at parties. Genius, meet Genius. Genius meet genius. It was a great way because then everybody felt really good about themselves and then they could talk about why she would call them a genius and they they could say what they do in life and it was this great opening. So I think, you know, whenever people say that word genius, I just think, oh, they can't remember my name. You know, it feels great. That's not to be obnoxious and say it doesn't feel great and it's wonderful to have a financial cushion for the rest of my life if I play it right. It gives you access to things. Certainly wouldn't have been on Colbert, I don't think, without it. Maybe, maybe it would have happened, but it's definitely opened up a a few doors here and there. Maybe I'd be going to Broadway this spring, but probably not. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Did you write the show or were you just performing in it? It's a play that I've written, and there's a, a part that I could play. It's not something that I'll ever age out of, so I was really excited by the idea of just being the playwright this time. That happens with my play here. I was just the playwright on it, so it's nice. 
My first time on Broadway, it's a totally different machine. A different kind of craft is involved. You want the idealistic, naive way of thinking that, oh no, I just make my art and it doesn't matter. But it actually does matter. You have to adjust for the audience that's coming to see. Not change the art, not change the content, but change the invitation into it. So that's a specific craft that I don't know yet. So I'm learning it with this particular time out, first time out. So it's nice to just be able to focus just on writing. What's the name of the show? It's called Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus. You have a cast set? Yeah, it's Nathan Lane, Andrea Martin, and I, I'm not allowed to say the third person yet because we haven't announced, but it's like three cast, cast members. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that, but we're here to talk about holiday Taylor Max's holiday sauce. Yeah. So. The original idea happened over a year ago that you decided you wanted to do a holiday thing? Yeah. When I did 24 Decade, it became so much about taking the calamity of our lives and not ignoring it or not making work that's counter to it or just commenting on the calamity of our lives, but actually transforms that calamity somehow. That's what 24 Decade to me was really about. How do we transform this history? You know, we've got all this history on our backs. What do we do with it? So, and moving forward, I said, you know, I want to make work like that as I move forward, which actually doesn't just comment, but actually transforms and has that conscious intention of transforming the calamity in our lives, really manifesting it, not just imagining it. So I thought, let's make a holiday show because it seems like the holidays for me and a lot of people that I know are a tough time, can be a tough time, have um, historically been a hard time for a lot of people. And so how can we transform that and make it something that is useful to us? So that's what I set out to do with this show. I think we're doing it. <laughs> how long is the show? It's just two hours at the most. You know, it's anywhere from 90 minutes to two hours, depending on what happens that evening. Yeah. No intermission, then? No intermission, but as always in all my shows, you know, if you have to go to the bathroom, you just go, and there's no you know, stress about that or anything like that. I'm not going to call you out for going to the bathroom. <laughs> Nigel Smith said that it's some material from 24 Decade and most of it are Christmas songs. And so, Yeah, well, that's a little true and a, a little not. I originally thought that I would do a decade of all holiday music in 24 Decade, and so we did a workshop where we took a lot of holiday songs from the 1830s that that decade was going to be all holiday music because that's when Christmas started to really kind of solidify itself in the U.S. Right. And then I changed my mind. So we kind of did a little workshop of it, but we never actually included any of that music in the show. So there's not a single song that we're singing in this show that we did in 24 Decade. I'd say it's about half holiday songs and half different kinds of popular music, but none of the songs were in the previous show. I only wrote one of the songs in the show. They're all covers, if you will, <laughs> if you can call God Rest You Merry Gentlemen a cover. <laughs> so they go back all the way to yeah, the beginning yeah, yeah. of Christmas. Song. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't say all the way to the beginning. There's nothing from the Roman Empire in the show. <laughs> Take us through how a single song gets developed, particularly in terms of the costume and set design. This show is kind of divided in half in terms of machines thinking. I wanted to make kind of a Wiccan ceremony holiday show. <laughs> So, you know, because the, the Christians kind of took the pagan traditions and they made them Christian traditions and co-opted. So I thought, well, let's co-opt this Christian tradition of uh, a holiday season and see if we can bring a little more pagan stuff to it. So we, Matt uh, Ray, our musical director and arranger, he's done some incredible arrangements and where we 
kind of bring a, a, a bit more of a Velvet Underground vibe to some of these holiday songs and different kind of styles. There's a funeral march. There's a, you know, all, a bunch of different things like that. There's a song that's a bit of a Bollywood style. <laughs> so we're just bringing different traditions into this more, uh, I think of the holidays as kind of uh, patriarchy as uh, as spirituality, you know? So, so it's like, how can we undercut that with our musical choices? So Machine, because of the whole Wiccan ceremony thing, Machine decided that the costumes would be the first costume that I wear would be more kind of the, the underworld. And then the, the second uh, costume that I wear would be more of the light and sparkly kind of world. When he makes a costume for you and you put it on and you, the headdress makes you feel like you're Lucy Ricardo falling on your head, what do you say? I mean, you say, can you make it lighter? How do you deal with that? I, I usually never tell him what to do. I have the great privilege of getting to wear machines outfits and getting to wear this wearable art, barely wearable art. That's why you threw the thing off at Colbert. Well, because I knew it was going to fall off when I made out with machines. So I took it off before it would fall off. People saw the airing. They saw me making out with machine. If you just saw it online, then they cut that part online. I'm not a costume designer. I mean, I used to design my own outfits, but they weren't as good as they are now. And so I'm not going to tell Machine how to do his job. And he doesn't tell me how to do my job either. So we respect each other as artists and he makes his work. I make my work and then we squish them together. And then I will adjust sometimes what I'm doing for his work and he will adjust what he's doing for my work. And that's how we work. We just trust each other to adjust for each other. So the most I'll ever tell him is to cut a hem so I don't trip. But if a headpiece is really heavy, I'll say something like, you know, I, I will wear this as long as I can, but I might have to take it off at a certain point. And he's always fine. He's more interested in the opening appearance of it than he is in it maintaining itself. The only time I met Machine, he must have been wearing platforms. He seemed to be somewhat over seven feet tall. Yeah, uh, he is probably seven feet tall in his high heels. Yeah, Really? Uh, yeah. yeah. Especially with the headpieces, he's probably over seven feet tall. Do you do the makeup? I do and I don't. Sometimes I'll have our makeup designer, Anastasia Nusova. She will come and do makeup when I want something particularly fabulous and special. Like, like for a 24 decade, I wanted her to add to the makeup and change the makeup during the course of the 24-hour performance so she would come out on stage and during a trumpet solo or something like that she'd she'd add things to my makeup and so that it just became this by the end you know I had maybe 10 inches of makeup on my face but uh this show being two hours uh I just do it myself how many so. costumes do you have I just have two costumes, but there's other characters in the show. Other, <laughs> so, other characters? Yes, there's other performers in the show that have costumes. Um, creative holiday sweaters. When you're switching costumes, I mean, you also need time to be able to switch. In 24 Decade, we do it in lots of different ways. I would change behind a screen, and we would see the silhouette, or I would sometimes just change right on stage in front of everybody during a song or during banter. And mixing it up is always part of the fun. This time we have a little surprise. I won't exactly say what it is, but there's a surprise that happens while I go and change and then come back in a new outfit. Because the holidays are so much about opening presents. So it's like, oh, we got to have the reveal. I don't want the reveal to be that we're wrapping the present. <laughs> you know what I mean? I want the reveal to be that we're opening it. Tell her, Mac, it's sort of a concert, but it's also more than that. Mm. Is it scripted? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's all scripted. That's why, you know, I can become a finalist for the Pulitzer in playwriting because it is all scripted. That doesn't mean there's not a major element of improv involved in what we do because so much of it depends on what is happening in the room at any given moment. There's always 10 to 20% of just off the cuff stuff, but there's, I script it all. It's all, it's all plotted out and written. And now I have the, the right to say everything that I've written out and, or to say none of it. That's the great joy of the show. You've also got a co-director in the audience coming up and saying, this works or this doesn't. That's helpful. Yeah. I mean, Nigel is essential to this process and he's been with us for almost, almost through the whole thing. Do I want to say that? We've been doing it for eight years and he's been with us for at least for five. Yeah. I don't know what it looks like from the audience because I'm on the stage. So I need my, uh, my co-director. We need each other in order to get through this. The vision for it comes from a, a concept that I had, but theater is the most collaborative art form there is. So if you're not willing to let your vision change, you probably shouldn't work in the theater. So I do need somebody to be outside of my vision who's there to help wrangle the other visions as well. And the Colbert show, you talked a little bit about politics. Yeah. I mean, I would assume that plays some kind of role here. I mean, you can't avoid the political situation in America, but maybe in a holiday show you sort of can or? Oh, no, I don't. That's not my approach. You know, my approach is to incorporate the calamity and figure out a way that we can make a better world by incorporating the calamity as opposed to ignoring it or just protesting it. So it is about transforming the world that we're living in right now and, and the kind of evilness that, <laughs> and I do think it's evil. <laughs> Because I think narcissism is inherently evil. And so it's that grappling with that and transforming that is, is part of what the show is. And what, what better time to do it than when you got everybody gathered? You know, the holiday time is the time when presumably you're gathering with your like-minded people and you're, you're having this ritual of meal to discuss things. That's the time to, that's the time to figure out how to make the world better when everybody's in the room together. It's strategy planning. <laughs> do you ever get Fans who come up and say they voted for Trump? Fans? I, I've had audience members who have voted for Trump and talked to me about that. I can't say if they're fans or not. How do you deal with them? What do they say to you? Well, I had one woman yell at me in Seattle uh, that I was being racist to white people. <laughs> Because I was critiquing something that um, white people, uh, white privilege, uh, I was critiquing a white privilege. So she thought I was being racist to white people. And clearly she was coming with her agenda or her kind of Trump agenda. Apparently she purposely goes to liberal shows and does this, likes to heckle and stuff. So, you know, with that particular thing, uh, she was a protester. So she was there to scream and disrupt the show and there was no communicating with her. So I had her removed. Because we work really hard to give what we think is as a gift to the audience. And a lot of people come to to listen and we've chiseled some space for ourselves. And it doesn't mean that everything that we say is right or that it's not evolving. But there's no way I will ever let somebody take over my show. So she had to go. But other people are more reasonable, and then you can have a conversation, and you just have to decide when is the time to have the conversation. It's usually not during the show. Sometimes they think it's during the show. You say, no, 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 there are rules. Just because it seems like the rules are different doesn't mean that there aren't rules. So let me tell you what the rules are. Rules are 
I'm still in charge in this space, but we can have a conversation after. And once you explain that to them, usually they will back down. And then people will come up after the show and say that they disagreed with something or they'll write me a letter that says they disagree with something I say. And sometimes I'll read their letters on stage, you know, as a way to send them up and send their outrage up a little bit. And sometimes I will listen to what they have to say and say, oh, okay, I alienated this person. My goal isn't to alienate people. People. And uh, and so I adjust the invitation into the show and figure out a way where, okay, they're not in charge of the story, but I'm allowing them to still listen to the story um, and not shut them down. So it's all useful. Even the crazy heckler that just comes for a protest is useful. You know, that audience got to see me take charge. That was really fun for them. Yeah, they applaud. And, you know, I think there they gave me a standing ovation when she was gone and I came back out. And in London, I had a heckler who was a liberal heckler. And she was very upset about something else. And she was drunk, too. And I just laid into her and in a very loving way, not in any kind of gross way, I don't think. But that is really fun for an audience to see somebody be challenged and then they take that person on and, and triumph. It's not my preference. I don't really like every show to be a hero's journey where the, uh, the person on the stage has to be the protagonist and there's an antagonist and they have to overcome that person. I mean, I find that kind of movie making boring and theater making boring, that hero's journey thing at this point in my career. I used to make stuff like that all the time. But it's still a useful technique. Well, if your focus is mostly on the nature of community and bringing people together. It gets in the way. Yeah, it's rude. It's just rude. It's rude. <laughs> that's all there is to it. It's just rude. But people are rude and that's a reality. So you have to incorporate the calamity. So the best way to do it is to make it part of the theme. It's exactly what's happening with Trump. He is a heckler, the heckler in chief. He wants the American story to be his story. And he's refusing anyone else in America to have their story. Even his base, which say that he's telling their story, but he's not, you know, we know he's not. So I just think, okay, you have to find a way to make sure that he knows that, that the American story is still, or not even just him, that the, that the audience knows that the American story is still the American story. It's not his story. So if you can do that by saying, ah, we have a way to incorporate the calamity of him, the things that he says into our show, but then move past that, that is really liberating for the audience. And that's part of what Holiday Sauce is about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before I go, let's talk briefly about Gary. Is it really a sequel to Titus Andronicus? Yeah. So uh, at the end of Titus Andronicus, you don't need to see Titus Andronicus to understand my play. In fact, it's probably better if you don't. <laughs> but at the end of Titus Andronicus, there's this coup and a bunch of people die uh, in a banquet hall. And so my play starts after the people that are alive have left the room and the maids have come in to clean up. And it's really just the maids cleaning and what they decide to do uh, with um, all these corpses. And yeah. Did you write it in Shakespearean words? Or? There's some verse in it. Yeah. There's a sonnet. There's rhyming couplets. There's, uh, there's just Einbeck pentameter verse. But it's also in a lot of prose. It's primarily in prose. And it's going to be on Broadway with an amazing cast. Nathan Lane, Andrea Martin. Yeah. Yeah. And George Wolf is directing. So it's very intimidating, but it's so much fun. And Nathan is just, I mean, you know, I, there was this part of me that was like, oh, you know, I kind of wrote this part for myself, but I understand. You know, and it's like Nathan Lane. I'm not going to say no to Nathan Lane. He's just so incredible. He really is. 24 Decade 
history of popular music. A year ago, when we talked about it, you said maybe it would find its way onto television somehow. Is that still a possibility? We're making a film of it. Are you? Yeah, so we filmed it in Los Angeles, the whole show. We filmed the 24-hour show that we did, but with minimum cameras. But we have a lot of footage now. I mean, we have over, I think, 72 hours of footage because we filmed rehearsals too and stuff. And we've been going around to kind of some iconic American places and also filming us in those places amongst the tourists and stuff. So that's going to be part of the film as well. So we're, we're making that. It's going to take a couple of years because film takes a long time. And, uh, you know, we got to raise the money, all that stuff. So you don't know where it's going to wind up, in a theater or in a television? I mean, my fantasy is that we can release it as a 24-hour long film, you know, where we show it in some museum or gallery or theater for 24 hours a couple times, you know, around around the world someplace, but then put it online in some streaming service where you can watch it either an hour at a time or for 24 hours. That's my fantasy. Taylor Mac, are you planning to do any more concert-y type things? Always. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to stop doing concerts. It's my family, and I just love these musicians so much, and all this whole team, and the, all the the crew and everything. So if we can keep everybody together and keep performing, then that's, that's going to be a great joy for us. So I don't know what the next kind of concert would be, and I, I know we're definitely going to focus on a, a more theatrical show, less singing show that involves more kind of movement for the next big thing that we all do together. But there'll be concerts for a long time to come. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.